these companies use like similar, like really high quality down. And if one is only using a pound of it and the other is using two pounds of it, it's probably a difference. Uh, so this bag, it's two pounds, which is heavier than the other quilts, but also it's much warmer and it has a hood that cinches and it has this full zipper and it's just like, oh my God, it's like climbing into a warm room with like a fire, like a wood stove. It's like going into a small room where the wood stove has been going like all evening in preparation for your arrival. Like you come in out of the cold and you go into your little room. And Welcome to the Hiking Through Podcast. I'm Erin Egan, and this is the podcast where I talk to experienced through hikers about their adventures on the trail and strategies for successfully completing a through hike. Today's guest is Carrot, known off trail as Carrot Quinn. She started this crazy adventure life with a through hike of the PCT in 2013. Since then, she's taken another spin on the PCT, hit the CDT and Hayduke trails, and completed a number of the shorter trails as well. And in this episode, we talk about the disordered eating that is long-distance hiking, why she isn't worried about the extra weight of her luxury items anymore, and cowboy camping with the bugs. So you can find this episode and all previous episodes at hiking-through.com, where you can also find show notes, photos, and links for any gear mentioned in this podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcast and all the other podcast places. Enjoy my conversation with Carrot. How's it going? It's going good. The The last dregs of summer are pretty nice over here in LA. Oh, nice. Um, has it been pretty hot there? Well, I live at the beach, so it's a little relative. Like at the beach? I love it. As long as you can stay at the beach. If you have to go into the city, it's a pain in the ass. Yeah. Now, where are you in Arizona? I'm in Tucson. Um, I just got back September 2nd, which is the earliest. I usually just spend the winters here and get here in November, Mm -hmm. but I'm trying to spend longer here. And so I got back September 2nd and it's finally starting to cool down a little bit, which is really nice. Like it's not a hundred anymore. Now it's like 90 every day, which is great. (laughs) (laughs) Which means you can actually go outside and not feel like you're going to melt. Yeah, it's great. When, when I first got back, it was like, 105 and then at night it was still hot and I was like this is too much but now it's like getting really nice so I got your book and I've been reading it and you were at that point you were in a trailer are you doing a trailer down in Tucson or are you in like an apartment or that kind of thing I'm in a house uh I have a house and I have two housemates and yeah, it's great. I What I've been doing the last four years, I guess, is um, living, this is my fourth winter in Tucson, so living in a house in Tucson in the winter and living in my van in the Pacific Northwest in the summer. And that's been going really great. So you, when you headed out onto the Pacific Crest Trail that first time, it seemed to have started a trend for you. Like every year, it seems like 
you've gone out on on hikes, whether it's a you know a full extent through hike or or something a little shorter than that, but but you've basically gone out on your feet and and seen the world. Yeah, that was my first long distance hike, so it got me the long distance hiking, and I've been doing it um, ever since. Um, I don't do it as much as I did the first three years. I was hiking like five months or six months a year. And now I'm only hiking a couple months a year, but yeah, I like it. So I keep doing it. Which is really interesting. Again, I'm reading your book right now and it, it seems almost like you have this love hate relationship with the trail, at least that year. Um, there were, there were moments that you were almost euphoric and there were moments that you almost seemed to feel like the trail was out to get you. Well, I think people's first long hike that's where the good stories are right because <laughs> i think when when someone is new to something that's when the most growth happens and when the most stuff goes awry and when it's the most exciting and when the highs are highest and the lows are lowest so that i think that made a good story because i was a total noob so i like made mistakes and learned and like had to face challenges and triumph but I mean, since then, I've done a lot of hikes and I blog every day on every single one. And um, there, you know, the story has not been as interesting since then, because I really (laughs) think that stories are best when someone is when the experience is new. Right. There are the high highs and the low lows. Yeah, totally. And then, I mean, I that my first hike of the PCT, which was my first long distance hike, was the first time I ever did something like that with my body, like something so strenuous, that was still, it's the most fun I've ever had in my life. But I also got really depressed after because, Mm -hmm. you know, it was like short and it was brief and then it was over. And um, since then, my hikes have not felt as in like as mind blowing because everything's not new anymore, but I also don't get depressed after. So that's really nice too. (laughs) Um, I really do think like when something's new is when you get that like peak experience. Right. Because everything is so new and fresh and, and all of that. Yeah. Why, why do you think that you're not getting sort of the after trail blues anymore? Well, like I said, it's just not as, I think when you don't, um, I think when I don't get like as swept up in it, then I don't get as depressed when it's over. Like, I think my first long distance hike, I just kind of was like so free because, because it was so new, I felt like it was just really intense and really like a peak experience. Mm -hmm. And so then when that was taken away, it was really intense. But my hikes since then are like not as intense. And so then when they're over, I'm just like, okay, now I go back to the other things in my life, which I'm actually also excited about. Right. And it it feels like just from what you were saying right there, you have more of a plan for what you're going to do after you finish versus that first one when you weren't as sure. Sure. Sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes. (laughs) Oh, that's perfect. Now what, when you went out on that first hike, you were a little bit starting from scratch. What kind of pushed you out there? I just, uh, wanted to try it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I just wanted to try it. And so you had to, you and you had how much time between you making that decision and starting the trail? I think it took me a year. Okay. I think one year to 
plan. And that's the other thing about when something is totally new, it, I think it takes a lot longer to figure out, to plan for it and figure out the logistics because there's just so much that you have to like try to learn or Google or like read about or uh, watch, you know, videos or whatever. So yeah, it took me a while. And I still, when I started, felt like I knew nothing, which I think is uh, really common because, you know, you can read advice until like you're exhausted, but everyone's trail experience is different. And so like I read a ton of gear advice Mm -hmm. and I learned a lot about like ultralight gear and all this stuff. But then when I started the stuff I thought I liked was different than the stuff I actually ended up liking. And, um, I've seen that happen with like so many other hikers too, where just like preference doesn't transfer. And, um, so no matter how much research you do, you're still going to have to learn so much on trail on your first long distance hike. Yeah. So I, I spent a ton and also, you know, researching and planning and like falling down these rabbit holes is a really great way to pass the time when you're <laughs> waiting to start hiking. Yeah. So that's really fun, but it's just so funny. No matter how much you do, there's still so much you just have to learn on trail and there's, it's so fun. Like, yeah, so much still goes awry. Meaning in in your hikes today or now? No, just the first one. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what was like based on all the research that you had done and the and the planning and the the gear that you had gotten and so forth? What was one of the things that surprised you the most about that versus when you were out there and you're like, I don't like this at all. Like this is what I actually prefer. What surprised me most about the gear I liked? I guess the, yeah, the gear you liked or, or that you had that preconceived notion or plan in your head. And then you got out there and you're like, no, that's not really exactly how I either the gear I like or how I like to hike or what I like to eat or. I read, um, I read a lot about ultralight backpacking that I think was, it's sort of written for people who are going out on shorter trips and which is totally legit, but it's for people who sort of get real competitive with their base weight, but on a shorter trip. And so I think I like, I, I chose like the lightest weight Ziplocs because it was like, Oh, these choose the lightest weight Ziplocs because those are lighter. <laughs> and it was like, don't bring a knife, just bring like a razor blade wrapped in the cardboard from a cereal box. And it's like, use a cereal box because that cardboard is lighter and like carry your food in a grocery bag, just like a thin, Mm-hmm. grocery bag not even like a reusable grocery bag you know and all these things and which really did make my base weight very light but then all of that stuff fell apart because you know I was going out for months and so that was funny I was like oh I need to actually get a food bag and um I was like I should pick the heavier weight ziplocs for my like electronics you know or whatever mm-hmm. um so that was really funny and interesting and then else there was a lot of stuff which I think is really common like since then I've like I've had a a number of friends get into long distance hiking and you know it's really exciting to give gear advice people are like you know I've had a couple friends that are just like look I saved up a bunch of money just tell me what to buy and I'll buy it which is really fun because (laughs) like when I first started long distance hiking I was super broke so I like went on eBay and found like a used frameless pack for like $80 that like fit terribly and was like way too big for me and all this stuff, you know, and I found like all these like deals on my gear and 
So when someone's like just starting out and they can buy the really good stuff and they're like, just tell me what to buy. It's like really fun. You're, and I like write these lists where I'm like, this is, you know, the dream gear list. Mm-hmm. And then this has happened with several friends. They just like buy everything on it. And then they hate at least half of it. And, you know, sometimes they hate like 75 or 80% of it. And it's like, so sad. Um, yeah. So it just, it just happens to everyone. Like, you just have to figure out what works for you, which unfortunately means you got to do it. Yeah. Switching out gear on trail, sometimes wasting money, etc. Yeah. I, I had somebody literally say to me, and I completely get it when he was talking about shoes, like you just have to keep trying them, try different versions, different brands until you find the one that works. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And speaking of shoes, have you, like, what were you using on that, on that first one? I actually got lucky with shoes. I am, you know, my research, it was like, people were like, Brooks Cascadia's are everyone's favorite. So I was like, I'll try Brooks Cascadia's. And they've worked for me ever since. I've never had a problem with shoes, um, which is really cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes it just works out that way. Um, sometimes it doesn't. But I... Uh, I don't have a wide foot. I know that people, if you need a wide toe box, people really like ultras mm-hmm. and Brooks Cascadios are kind of narrower. So they work, they work great for me. Yeah. And I've never had a problem, which is really cool. Sometimes I try to use a different shoe because I'm like, Oh, this one's on sale. And then it like, it like injures me and I'm like, ah, uh, yeah. So I got pretty lucky. Yeah. Shoes do seem to be one of those things that will injure you. Yeah, they will. They will rub you to death. What What is going on in the background? Is that a dog? Oh, yeah. You can hear my dogs. Yeah, I have two chihuahuas in there wrestling okay. right now. Got it. I was like, it's either <laughs> yeah. a dog or it's like a, a, a parrot or something. <laughs> yeah, they're wrestling. <laughs> they make like these crazy snarling noises. Yes. Ferocious. <laughs> yeah. In, in reading you, your book, you seem to have a lot of, of encounters with poison ivy. But you didn't actually ever say if you actually ever like broke out in a rash or, or, or had a reaction to it. Did you? That's funny. I can't actually remember now. Um, <laughs> but I'm guessing that if I think I like so because there's actually I think it's actually poison oak maybe, or maybe it's, I don't know. I was probably wrong, whatever I called it in the book, but it, whatever it is, poison ivy or poison, poison oak. oak. Yeah. I know in Southern Oregon, it's poison oak. It only exists in a few places on the PCT. And I think I did brush against it. And so I kept that in the book. Cause it's like exciting to, for me to be like, Oh no, am I going to get poison ivy? But I think the reason I never brought it up again is cause I didn't. So I probably, that was like some bad editing on my part to just like leave that hanging. <laughs> but um, I didn't have a, I didn't have a professional editor, just some very, very kind friends mm-hmm. who read the manuscript and told me when they were bored and um, helped me fix typos and stuff. Yeah. And, and <laughs> for everybody who's listening, what is the name of your book? Oh, it's called through hiking will break your heart. And what made you decide on that title? I honestly can't remember now. Um, I think that that year was just really emotional for me. And I feel like also when 
I'm new to something like a something I that's completely new. I have this sort of like naivety that is precious and rare and once lost, you know, you can really get that back in a when it comes to like a certain thing, mm-hmm. like a new job or a new living in a new place or like a new community or you know what I mean? Like when you go into something, you're like, God, this is like so great. And you don't, all you can see is like all the good stuff. And it's just a sort of like beautiful naivety that like doesn't last forever. Yeah. I feel like I had that the whole time I was on the PCT that year. I just felt like I was in this like dream world. Like I'd stumbled and now I'm like very cynical, <laughs> <laughs> you know, cause everything is just like everything, you know? And I think I'm also like older and I'm just like, yeah, everything's just like everything, you know, but then I was like, Oh, like I found something that's like really different than anything I've ever done. And it's like this and this and this. And, um, there was just, it was like, I was just such a romantic about it. And like, it was such an emotional experience and which feels silly now, but at the time was like very genuine and like, um, So yeah, the whole thing, it felt like a really emotional experience for me. And then I think the heartbreak came from, because I think long distance hiking, when you go out on a trail for five months and really lose yourself in it that way, it's like you're losing yourself in something that's real, but it's also an illusion. And at the end you have to leave it. And that can be really heartbreaking. Like you have to leave behind this illusion because I think in the world today, we're not, we don't have a lot of mechanisms for connection. Like I think, Mm -hmm. I think that we're built to connect in these certain ways that are around survival and nature. Like they're very like, they feel very like place-based and nature and like earth skills and the outdoors and the seasons and survival and sort of bonding together not because it's like, Oh, like this is what kind of human I am. And this is what kind of human you are, but I'm a human and you're a human. Like how crazy is that? You know? And I think that that for most of human history has what is what has formed human connection. And we're not, we don't have a lot of that anymore in the regular world. And I think long distance hiking, you sort of leave the regular world and go into this world where all of those things exist again and you get to experience this like really stripped down minimalism of human embodiment. That's I think what we experienced for most of human history. And I feel like it felt like it feels like really right. And then when you have to leave it and go back to the regular world, it can be really sad. Yeah. I can, and like I can the, see that. the modern world has a lot going for it. Like, you know, modern dentistry, like all these different <laughs> things. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot that's really great, but um, human connection is a lot harder, I think. Yeah. And speaking of modern dentistry, I'm literally at the part where your tooth breaks. And Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think that, um, I really think that the long distance hiking diet is not good for... Um, dental health (laughs) I don't maybe it's coincidence it could totally be coincidence but I feel like I have tooth problems if I am like when I'm long distance hiking a lot I feel like that's when I'll have more dental problems but yeah my tooth broke it was it wasn't painful I was just eating granola and I bit down something hard and I pulled out of my mouth and it was like a piece of my molar 
wasn't painful, which is really great. And I went to Mammoth Lakes and found a dentist who could fix it, which was awesome. And he was the best dentist I'd ever been to in my life. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I I could just imagine you must not have hit a nerve, whatever, but oh my God, I could just imagine in the middle of nowhere. And that's just the last thing you need. Yeah. I actually, I have really bad dental health and I have like multiple um, root canals and crowns and I need like several more and I need like, I have like seven cavities that need filling and I need like, all, like my teeth, for some reason, my teeth have always been really bad and they always look, you feel like they're crumbling or about to crumble. And I, many times in my life, I've bitten down on a piece of a tooth that has fallen off. So, um, so this was nothing new. That was, I think the biggest piece that had ever fallen off at once, but yeah, it happens a lot. <laughs> I feel like. But luckily, I live close to the Mexican border now. So the last couple of winters, I've been going to Nogales mm-hmm. and going to this great dentist there. And it's like 40% of the cost of the US. And it's like the most high-tech dentist I've ever been to, like really nice machinery. So that's really great. I've heard that from other people as well. Yeah. When, when they have that option. Yeah. And if you're in LA... I mean, you could go closer to LA and I mean, I don't know, maybe you have like dental insurance, but if you don't, Mexico is great. Mexico is an option. Speaking of food, you, again, referencing your book, um, but you seem to have a love-hate relationship with the food that you were eating on the trail. Either like you were running out of it or you were in town and you were eating things you potentially shouldn't be eating because you're because of gluten or I think it was lactose or dairy, or you were (laughs) getting sick off of something else that seemed to be exacerbated by food, such as altitude sickness and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I think long distance hiking is pretty much a love hate relationship with food. (laughs) You need so much food but the only food you have access to is trail food when you're hiking, which is like revolting most of it. And then you have to carry enough to eat. And that year I like, you know, I was really new. So I often packed either too much or too little food. So either I would have too much and I was like, Oh, my pack's extra heavy for no reason. Or I wouldn't have enough. And I would be like rationing and like super hungry. So I don't know if you've gotten to the end, but it's still the lowest day I've ever had on any trail in Washington. There's a section, there's a section where I get tonsillitis. And then right after that, I get into town and get antibiotics, feel better, get back on trail. And in the next section, I run out of food and end up hiking 50 miles on two bars. Oh my. Um, yeah. Maybe it's four bars. I don't remember. Don't call me. It's either two or four bars, but, um, so like one or two bars a day. It was like two 25 mile days. And that I was so hungry. I thought I was going to black out. And that's the lowest moment I've ever had on trail. But yeah, I just like, it was really hard for me because eventually I learned that I just need, like eventually I learned how many calories I need every day once I'm hiking full days and have hiker hunger, which is different for everyone. But there's like ballpark, you know, you can kind of guess with ballpark estimates that other people have. But I figured out how much I need. And then I figured out, what that looks like if I just want to eyeball it with the foods I eat or I'll just like count like all the calories and everything to make sure I have it. So 
I just like put the work in now and I had to like fuck up a lot to get to the <laughs> point where I would actually like put the work in where I was like, I don't want to worry about food anymore. Oh. And then I think in towns I was eating stuff that made me sick. I still do that. Honestly, it's like my, um, gluten intolerance is actually not as bad as it used to be. And same with dairy doesn't make me as sick as it used to. And so I'll just eat it because sometimes like if I get like a little diarrhea, it's like being able to eat the food is so good for morale that it's kind of worth it. It makes you, it makes you feel happy. Yeah. Like it just makes me feel, it just makes me feel good to be able (laughs) to eat like a pizza, you know? Um, and also like binge eating is a time honored long distance hiking tradition. Like long distance hiking is very much disordered eating. Like it's very much about like binge and restrict and binge and restrict. Like when you're hiking, even if you have enough food, it's often hard enough to really eat as much as you need because you're just not spending enough time eating because you're walking, you're too busy walking and it's, and also your food's not that appealing and yada, yada, yada. And so it's restricting often or it's hot or whatever. And then you get into town and you like binge to try and make up that calorie deficit. Right. But now your stomach is probably shrunk and, and all of that other stuff that comes along with it, which also is probably not going to make you feel great either. Wait, sorry. What do you mean? Um, well, because of not eating a lot, not eating the quantities while you're out hiking, hypothetically or, or whatever your stomach shrinks particularly when you're eating a lot of smaller things smaller meals yeah totally and then you get into town and all of a sudden you're eating a whole pizza or a you know whatever and <laughs> yeah uh, that it's probably quite a shock to the system yeah oh yeah totally it still makes me sick <laughs> it's just it is what it is yeah how did you go about determining the number of calories that you needed. And I know like in your book, you're talking about the fact that in the desert, the number of calories that you need is different than when you're in the Sierras or when you're in, when you're doing different types of hiking. So how are you gauging that at this point? Just experience. Like if you hike, if you through hike the PCT or the CDT or whatever, you spend enough time out there that you get to know your body. Like I started with the ballpark estimate from other people, um, And then I would try that and, you know, I would just notice how much I was eating and if it felt like enough or if it felt like not enough or I was, if I was rolling into town with too much food and I know when it's colder, I need more. And if there's a lot more elevation gain, then I probably need a little more. If there's a ton of elevation gain and it's cold, then I'll just be hungry. There's, there's no amount of food that will be enough. I'll just be hungry. (laughs) Yeah, totally. What was the baseline that people were giving you? Remember? Um, I think most people carry around 3,500 calories a day once they have hiker hunger. I think uh, for a lot of men, that's not enough, which is why men kind of, a lot of men just kind of waste away on trail mm-hmm. um, and end up probably having lost more weight than they want to and like not, maybe not feeling as strong as they would like because it's probably not enough because the more muscle mass you have, the more calories you're burning. So it's a vicious cycle. Yeah. And well, through hiking, you, you lose all your muscles, but your calves. But <laughs> if you're, if you're a man, you pro you probably 
tend to have more over your body. I mean, that's why Mm -hmm. men burn more calories generally. I mean, this is generalization. It's not true for everyone um, at all, but generally a lot of men need more than 3,500 calories a day, but, and a lot of women that's about enough. The, for me, that's like, once I have hiker hunger, which is like 10 days to two weeks in 3,500 calories a day is about perfect for me. If I'm hiking full days, which is like 10 hours, you know, and then if it's colder, if there's like insane elevation gain, I need more. Oh, Oh, one other thing is I think people who need more in my experience, what I witnessed is they still only carry about 3,500 calories a day because they just don't want to carry the weight. Like it's just too heavy. Like, yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's all. No. And I, I, it's, it's a fine line between weight and I mean, fill in the blank food, clothing, you know, um, Mm -hmm. water, yeah. Um, all of those things add the extra weight, but people make the, make the trade-offs, I guess. Yeah, totally. Let me th- think for a second. I was going to ask a question. Wait, I, I lost it. Anyway, what did you do trade-off wise in terms of the weight for yourself? Not a lot. I actually carry a lot of luxuries. My base weight has been creeping up steadily ever since I started long distance hiking. I think it's like 12 pounds now. And I have like a lot of luxuries. I have Um, really warm sleeping bag. I have a full length Neo air and I have like a huge battery pack, (laughs) Um, all sorts of stuff. Uh, So I don't know if I have any trade-offs left. Like I used to feel like I was really like white knuckling it. I was like, I'm only going to use the torso length Neo air. And then I would put my pack under my feet and like ball up my extra clothes for my pillow. But then like the pillow would be lower. My head would be lower than the rest of my body. And I'd have to keep like squishing it back up and kind of toss and turn. Uh, but then I just, I just slowly got everything I wanted. Um, And then recently I even got like a pack that was heavier than the ones I had before because it's just like so comfortable and I'd have to kind of think about that. Like, I don't know, like, I guess I could carry, I mean, I don't even feel like I need camp shoes. I know a lot of people like camp shoes, but Mm -hmm. I've never like wanted them. If I wanted them, I'd probably just carry them. But, um, what are you, what is your pack? What is, what are you using now? I carry the ULA Ohm, which is a pack I've just seen everybody loves ULA. Like Mm -hmm. they're so comfortable. And, um, I feel like the ohm is like a good balance between being like big enough and comfy enough to like not be fussy in any way yet still not being like too heavy. And I just, I have so many friends who've used it and loved it forever for years. And I just was, it was the pack I was recommended to recommending to everyone. Cause I was like, well, I like this pack, but you know, it has X, Y, Z and I like this pack because it has X, Y, Z. And then I was like, so then I'd be like, just get the ULA home. And then I was like, well, I need a new pack. Cause I actually had this pack I really loved, but it, um, started falling apart. Like they all do, mm-hmm. um, had a bunch of like tears in it from abrasion and different stuff. And I was like, oh, I need a new pack. And I was like, I'm going to get the ULA home. And it's like so comfortable. 
So it has all of the things that you were recommending to people, all of the little different features that you were recommending to people in one place. Well, the thing was, I was like, I was saying to people, you could get this other pack, but then I was saying, but it has these drawbacks. And then I was like, you could get this other pack, but it has these drawbacks. And so I was just like telling people, just get the ULA own because it doesn't have any. And then I was like, well, I should take my own advice. <laughs> yeah. You should listen to yourself. And it has really big hip belt pockets, which I like. You can just like mm-hmm. stuff a lot of bars in there. Yeah. I see a lot of people wearing like a little fanny pack where they're stuffing all of their snacks um, in lieu of having big pockets in the hip belt. I think that's silly. I mean, maybe I just don't get it. Cause I, I don't get it because if you just have hip belt pockets and you don't need a fanny pack, but it's like, people are like, Oh, well I don't have hip belt pockets or something, but it's like, but then they have to carry a fanny pack. I don't know. It's just, it seems a little redundant. Like I could see how the fanny pack would be cool. Like for town. Yeah. Cause then you'd have this little purse, you know, you carry around. Uh, but I'm like, why not just have, um, hip belt pockets, but I'm, it's probably like a couple ounces lighter. That's probably why people like it. It's all about the ounces. So what would you do in town? Like if, if you've got the hippo pockets in your main pack and you're wandering around town. Just hold your wallet in your hand or put it in your pocket. Were you, you know? wearing shorts that had pockets in them? No, I think I would just like carry my phone and my wallet in my hand. Or- <laughs> Yeah, because you know your wallet's like a Ziploc bag, and yeah, <laughs> it's so high tech. And then you go to the grocery store, and then you have like a grocery sack you can put stuff in. So mm-hmm. yeah, it works out. There's ways around everything. Oh, totally. Yeah, especially things like that. It's like there's no shortage of like things to carry things in. True. In the world so now, it's now it's going to cost you ten cents. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Uh, what now? What about your sleeping bag? You you said it's particularly warm and and cozy. Yeah, it's the Western Mountaineering Versalite. It was very expensive, and it is the best gear purchase I have ever made. I've heard somebody else say that. I was a little intimidated by the price. I'm a really cold sleeper, and before I got this bag, I unless I was on a trail where it's warm is warm at night, which is like when is it ever warm at night? Um, <laughs> I was just cold all the time. And, Mm -hmm. but I was like, I can't buy this bag. It's too expensive. But the thing is I went through several other bags like quilts. And if I had just gotten this bag, I actually would have saved money because I ended up trying, um, like two other quilts first. So I think paying more for something that you end up keeping saves money in the long run for sure. than like sort of cycling through gear. That's not actually the gear that you want. Um, but yeah, it's like $600. (laughs) Now I've heard people talk about like the, the temperature ratings, um, where they say, you know, like this is a 20 degree bag, which means it will keep you alive at 20 degrees. How has your experience been with the Western mountaineering bag? I don't know what the it's rating a, is. But. Yeah, it's a zero degree. In my experience, so there's no like standardization of ratings. So every company has a different idea of what the ratings mean. So one company will be like, this is a zero degree bag. And another company will be like, no, this is a d- zero degree bag. And their bag will be twice as much down. And that's actually literally what's happening. So the Z-Packs quilt 
is what, 10 degree, 10 or zero. I don't remember. Maybe the Versalite, actually, the one I have is 10. I don't know. Anyway, the Z-Packs bag is 10 or zero degrees. I don't know. It's a pound, I think. And then my bag, the, Ver- the Western Mountaineering Versalite is two pounds. Um, and I think it's the same rating, either 10 or zero. So those are two very different takes on what that rating means. And so I think you either have to get to know the individual brands by talking to people and being like, literally how warm is your bag? Like how, like find a cold sleeper who has that bag and then be, or like also just look at the weight of the down, like look at the weight of the bag. Uh, because they're, I, these companies use like similar, like really high quality down. And if one is only using a pound of it and the other is using two pounds of it, it's probably a difference. Um, so this bag, it's two pounds, which is heavier than, um, the other quilts, but also it's much warmer. Um, and it has a hood that cinches and it has this full zipper and it's just like, Oh my God, it's like climbing into a warm room with like a fire, like a wood stove. It's like going into a small room where the wood stove has been going like all evening in preparation for your arrival. Like you come in out of the cold and you go into your little room and it's just, you're finally warm. It's really nice. And I have not been cold since. Now, when did you get this bag? How long ago? I got, I got it for the Hayduke Trail, which I think I did in 2016. Because the Hayduke's cold. And I was just so t- finally so tired of being cold. I was like, I'm going to get this bag. And it was incredible. It, it feels like, or the way that you're describing it, it makes it sound like it's, like walking into a nice warm cabin with a roaring fire and uh, at the end of the night or at the end of the day. Yeah. Now what kind of tent or whatever are you using these days? Uh, I use, I have two shelters that I use that I really like. Um, They're both Z packs. My one person shelter is the Z pack solo hexamid solo tarp doesn't have the mesh because when I went to buy it, um, I couldn't afford the one with the mesh. So I just got the tarp. That's actually really cool because when there's no bugs, I just use it as is. And it's like five ounces, which is insane. And then if there's bugs, I have, um, the Cedar summit bug net that hangs inside. That's like another three ounces or something. So that's a really cool system. And then if I'm going somewhere where the bugs are really bad, or if I'm hiking with a partner, or if it's going to be raining a ton, because the hexamid solo works in the rain. You just have to be kind of fussy. Like the, the defensible space is like exactly the size of my body. So I just have to like, you know, I just have to lay like just so, you know, but it works, it works great. But if it's going to be running a ton or if the bugs are bad, or if I'm with a partner, I bring the Z-Packs duplex and I love that shelter. And I've used it so much that it's starting to become a threadbare, which is this interesting thing that Cuban fiber does where it literally it's like there's all these pinholes like when you're in it and you look at it against the light there's just like a dozen tiny holes um because it literally just abrades from existing Um, but that shelter is incredible like if it's raining or if there's a ton of bugs or with another person or if you just want a bunch of space and you want to feel like you're in a palace it's like an incredible shelter and how much extra or how much additional weight does that add? I think that with the stakes is 20 ounces. So just and my other one with the stakes, I think is like 10 or something. Okay. Yeah. 
You were doing a lot of, at least on the, on the PCT, you were doing a lot of cowboy camping, like bugs be damned. Was that just through exhaustion or you evolved to it and just, um, like that better than getting into the tent and, and doing all of that? I actually don't cowboy camp much anymore. I think I just find that I don't sleep as well when cowboy camping. A lot of people really love cowboy camping. And I think the reason is because it is like way less fussy. Like it buys you time both in the evening and in the morning. Cause you don't have to set up or take down a shelter. And it's also like easier to motivate to get up when you're not as like cozy in a way. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I don't do it much anymore because I just know 100% that if I sleep in my shelter, I'll have like a great night's sleep. But if I cowboy camp, it's kind of a gamble. Like, you know, because sometimes I start sprinkling on you in the middle of the night and sometimes, um, yeah, mosquitoes appear or um, you get a bunch of condensation or different things that can like affect your sleep. Did you find using a shelter stops the condensation? condensation is funny it's you can like read until your eyes bleed about (laughs) when there will be condensation where there will be condensation how to camp so there's not condensation and you can follow all the recommendations and it still seems so random sometimes um so there's all the moisture that comes out of you while you're sleeping Mm -hmm. and that moisture can it's you know, hard to say when this, ha- why this happens sometimes and why sometimes it doesn't happen. That condensation can, can like gather on the inside of your tent. And then if you brush the inside of your tent, like with your foot box or whatever, it can like get into your sleeping bag or it can like drip back down onto you. Mm-hmm. Often the moisture from your body does not gather inside your tent. And then there's the moisture on the outside condensing onto the outside of your tent. And sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not. So definitely using a shelter keeps off the outside moisture, but sometimes there's inside moisture, but yeah, it's definitely less condensation if you have a shelter. How, like when you were cowboy camping more, how did you deal with the bugs? I mean, the, the crawlies, the ants, the, you know, whatever. Well, they just like crawl over you and then they go, they crawl. They're just using you as a bridge. So yeah. I mean, mosquitoes are trying to bite you and I can't cowboy camp with mosquitoes. Um, But otherwise they're just getting from point A to point B. Like they're just going about their business, you know, like they're not trying to crawl into your ears or um, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like maybe spiders crawl into your mouth. I don't know, but they just like are going around doing their thing. So they're not trying to fuck with you. Nobody's trying to get squished. Like mice will run across you. They're just like trying to get from here to there. You're in the way. Yeah. So it's pretty chill. (laughs) That's a very Zen way to think of it. And all I can think of when I think of them, even just going from point A to point B is the feel of little, little legs, little feet on you. And that would, that alone would probably keep me up. Yeah. I don't think I've ever felt a bug on me. I have felt, other than mosquitoes while I'm sleeping, I have felt mice run across my sleeping bag while cowboy camping, but I've never felt a bug like crawling on me. You know, they're just crawling like on your sleeping bag. Right. 
they're not like swarming you, you know, bugs aren't just like waiting to swarm. You, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they're not like, we're not this. <laughs> we're not that important to them. Like they're not, they don't really care too much. They're not signaling they're, ahead. She's coming. She's coming. Okay, yeah. Prepare. Get ready. Get information. Prepare the troops. Yeah. You know, mosquitoes or other biting insects that live off our blood maybe, but not like ants or spiders, beetles, yeah. earthworms, pragmatuses, moths. <laughs> moths oh. will come if you're like reading on your phone or a Kindle, they'll come and like bang around. But yeah. Right. Moths, I'm the least concerned about, thank God. But, uh, <laughs> talking about things that are a little bit bigger, what has your experience been with? Like animals, reptiles, snakes, bears, cougars, mountain lions, that kind of stuff. Deer even. Yeah. Animals are really scared of us because we slaughtered almost everything alive when um, white people arrived in the Americas. Mm -hmm. And that has been the course of history since colonization. So anything that has survived since then unless you're in like Alaska or someplace that where animals are really wild or certain areas where there are problem bears who are like big raccoons everywhere else. It's like animals are fucking terrified of us. And yeah, that's what I've experienced. Black bears sometimes get like real naughty, like they're like big raccoons and they get, they can get habituated to food, but that's in areas that are really high traffic and usually where people are camping like campgrounds and where they have access to trash. And you'll learn that's not on the West coast, like bears, black bears are not aggressive on the West coast, but except for in like the occasional rare spot. And then you'll always hear about it. Like if you're on a trail, everyone will talk about it all day long. Cause it's like, you know, God forbid an animal should exist. It's like, you know, we all get in car accidents and there's like a mass shooting every three minutes by like a white supremacist, but God forbid, like a bear should exist in the woods. So you'll hear about it like months in advance, probably. And then you can like just um, not camp in that two mile stretch where there's one naughty bear or whatever. And then on the East Coast, unlike the Appalachian Trail, I think it's different. I think there's maybe more black bears, but I haven't hiked that trail. I don't want to hike that trail. There's a lot of shelters. I'm sure you can like just stay in the shelters and it's fine. Yeah. Deer will come and eat your pee. And they make a lot of noise, which can be really spooky because you're like, what is that? Because they huff. They'll be like huffing. And you're (laughs) like, what is that? But they really love to eat um, human urine. So I don't know. Maybe the sodium. I actually don't know. But they come in like paw the ground where you pee and eat it. So they're attracted to campsites a lot for that. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to have to Google this after we finish and figure out what that is. Yeah, totally. I was also hearing or seeing, I guess, just kind of following a few people this year that above the tree line, so alpine areas like marmots and stuff like that coming up and licking the salt off of people's legs and things. Again, it's about the sodium. and I've never heard of a marmot licking someone's legs. If that happened, wow, that's wild. But what does happen a lot is they will chew on trekking pole handles. So something I learned to do, that's one of those things I take for granted one of the many things that you like learn that you're like, I don't read that in a book is you, when you get to camp, you put your trekking poles against something with the handles up. 
Because if you leave the handles on the ground, creatures will totally chew them because they're salty. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I have a bunch of chew marks on my trekking handles. (laughs) So this is hard one knowledge. Totally. (laughs) And what are your trekking poles these days? Um, they're black diamond ultra distance Z poles. And I've always used the same poles and they're, they're just really light. They're like eight ounce for the pair. And so I got used to how light they were and just love them. And they're like, as far as I can trail, just as strong as the heavier poles. So they seem to break about as often as everyone else's poles. How are, how has your experience been with them, either them breaking or, uh, I'm assuming that they're, that they're, uh, telescoping or or whatever where you open it you slide out then lock it in place slide out the next section lock it in place no these ones fold up so okay it's kind of like you know how a tent pole that collapses has like that cord in the middle Mm -hmm. they're kind of like that so you unfold them and they snap together they have like a cord in the middle and so they're just one link they're like fixed length but they i i break one probably Every other year. About, yeah. Not bad. Yeah. Totally. So how are you measuring, like, the height on them if they, if you can't kind of resize it? So they, so depending on how tall you are, you want trekking poles of a certain height. So they come in three or four different sizes. So you just buy the size that fits you. And, and you found that to be close enough, essentially? Yeah. I mean, a stick is a stick is a stick. Like you can move your hand up and down, you know? So like the, the handle is like rubber foam rubber and you can Mm -hmm. put your hand kind of towards the top or towards the bottom. So, um, they come in four different sizes. So that you're supposed to put your arm, your arm is supposed to be at a 90 degree angle while you're holding it for like ergonomics or whatever. And so, um, you get the pair that when you're holding the handle, your arms at a 90 degree angle. And then if you find you want it to be a little longer or shorter while you're hiking for whatever reason, you can just move your hand. What? As simple as just moving your hand. Yeah. It's just, yeah. It's just a stick. It's wild. Very, very <laughs> basic technology. Super basic technology. Oh, they basically took a hiking stick and made it a little bit more fancy. They sure did. That's exactly <laughs> what they did. Oh. I sure did. Now you also had earplugs out there, at least on the first one. Do you still use them? Um, I carry them for town. I don't. I don't hike. Um, I hike a lot of trails that don't have a ton of people, mm. um, and so I don't sleep with them on trail because I get spooked if I can't hear anything. But I love having them in town because motels are often so noisy. And also, you know, when you're in nature and it's quiet and then you get into yeah. town, it's like the noise is kind of overwhelming. So they're nice for sleeping. Yeah. I was literally just thinking that. And then particularly if your hikers seem to generally cram people into a room. So you end up having a lot of that noise too, right? Yeah, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so when I first hiked the PCT... And the second time, and when I hiked the CDT, I was just like so poor as most, I feel like long distance hikers are. Many long distance hikers are very broke when they hike. And yep. so people will like get split a room with like four other people. And I don't, or like 
you know, if the motel will let you cram in as, as many people in. And I feel like I definitely don't do that anymore because when I get to town, I, it's like my like luxury, um, like recovery time, you know? And so mm-hmm. I'll like share a room with like one other person. And so we each get like our own bed. Nobody has to sleep on the floor and you like, <laughs> you don't have to deal with like too many people and you can just like have your luxury recovery spa time where you like take a shower and eat. <laughs> well, and that seems to be a a change for you from that first hike and potentially, you know, the second or whatever hike, because you seem to have a lot of anxiety around being alone or, or not being with the group. On my first hike. On, well, on your first hike, particularly, and I don't know about your, your yeah. second or third hikes, but yeah. Did that just evolve with experience or? Yeah. So my biggest phobia used to be camping in the woods alone. And so I just, I mean, it wasn't any rational reason. Like I knew nothing bad was going to happen and, you know, nothing bad does ever happen except every once in a while, you know, maybe there's like a crazy storm, you know, or whatever, but it's nothing like the childhood you ever thinks would happen in the woods, you know? but I just would get so spooked for no reason and just like wouldn't sleep if I was by myself. And so I would sort of hike with other people. I would get really attached to the idea of camping with other people. And it was actually hard. It worked out in 2013 because everyone I hiked with in 2013 was really amazing. But in 2014, I ended up hiking with some people who were like the douchiest people imaginable. Some of them were amazing. It was a group of 10 people. So there was a lot going on. A large some of them were great. Some of huh? a large group. Yeah. Yeah. It was a large group. Some of it, like too large, like that's probably not leave no trace. I wouldn't do that again. I don't (laughs) recommend it. But at the time I was like, sure, you know, but some of them were like really misogynist, really terrible, would just say terrible shit all the time about women. And like, just were, it was like, they were like performing this really toxic Mm -hmm. version of masculinity that they felt like they like had to perform, you know, it's like, I was like, you guys don't even like, I was like, you guys aren't like, like this, like, why are you acting like this? But it was like, they like some people in the group felt like they like had to do it, which I think is what patriarchy does. Like that's what our culture does is it tells men they have to act this way. Anyway, it was really gross. And, but once I started hiking with the group, it got to a point where there wasn't really anyone else around. Cause you know, as you go down the trail, people kind of like spread out and you stop like meeting as many people and there stops being so many people. And so I was like, if I leave this group, I'll be camping alone probably a lot because there just aren't that many people around anymore. And I had such an intense phobia of hiking, hike, of camping alone that I ended up sticking with this group for the whole hike and kind of having a terrible time. And um, when we finished, I just like, instead of feeling sad that the trail was over, I just felt this massive relief <laughs> because I just, I, my own insecurity about camping alone had like kept me trapped in a dynamic that felt really gross. So then the next year I hiked the CDT and I was hiking with two great friends who I had known from the PCT in 2013. And I was like the same thing where I was like scared of camping alone and they were really great, but they walked faster than me every day. We did the same miles, but they walked faster. And so I was just like, always felt like I was behind and that was really stressful and it wasn't anything they were doing, but I was just like, ah, I hate being the slow one. And I was like, I need to learn to hike solo so that I'm not so I don't get stuck in different group dynamics that um, don't always feel awesome, you know? And so then the last month I was on the CDT, I was like, I, which was Colorado, because we did New Mexico and then flipped up to Canada and hiked south. 
I was like, I'm going to hike Colorado solo. And so I like made myself, I like split off and there wasn't anyone else around. I wouldn't see anyone for days. And I just like camped solo every night. And I finally got over my phobia because, you know, you're so exhausted that you just start, you just sleep. Like at first you're like anxious and you start sleeping better. And, or at least for me, that's been my experience. And I sleep better on trail than anywhere else in my life. So eventually that carried over to when I was camping alone too. So then I, I wasn't scared of it anymore (laughs) or not as scared. I still get a little bit spooked, but I'm not like terrified, you know? You're not going to purposely avoid it or make decisions to avoid it. Yeah. I'm not like stuck in situations because I can't possibly do it. Like I, yeah, I'm free. I'm free. I can like hike with people when I want to hike with people, hike solo when I want to hike solo. I'm not like restricted by this fear. Yeah. Now on, on the second year when you did the PCT, that group, did you start with those people or did that group kind of evolve as you went through the desert and then into the Sierras? We all met pretty early on. Um, Yeah, we all met pretty early on and then just stuck together. It was like, it was fun at the time, like, especially in the beginning, it felt fun. But yeah, the 10 of us did like the whole trail together. It was really something. You were the horde walking up the trail. Yeah, I think other people really didn't like us. And I totally understand why I was like, you, I would not have liked us. (laughs) (laughs) The difference between being in the group versus outside of the group. Yeah, totally. We just like made so much noise. We took over entire campsites. We like, I mean, just thinking of like needing that many tent sites, you know, like it's insane. Like you can't, like you just take over wherever you go. You just take over. Like you take over the motel, you take over the campsite, you make a bunch of noise, you take over the water source, you take over the lunch spot. Like, you know, people aren't going out into nature to be like around a noisy horde. Yeah. (laughs) No offense to people who want to hike like that, <laughs> but it was like, I was like, I don't think I wouldn't do that now, but it was, yeah, it was interesting. When you were, when you were with that group, did you guys like stop for lunch at the same places and things like that? Or, or did you meet up at the end of the day, camp together and then kind of hike your own speeds during the day and meet up at the end of the day again? We would decide each day how many miles we were going to do and then where we were meeting for lunch. And so, and then we would take off and we all had different paces. And so then we would meet up again at lunch and then again at camp. Okay. Yeah. Of that group, I'm assuming that there were other people who were kind of your, your speed. Did, did you end up hiking with them or did you end up hiking a lot alone? I hiked a lot alone, but I found that everyone, I mean, people have really different paces Mm -hmm. and I really like, walking alone as long as I know that I'll see people you know at camp and it you know the people I'm hiking with who I want to find like friends with or whatever you know I know I'm going to see them at lunch or at camp or whatever and then I prefer to have breaks in between where I'm just walking alone so I can walk at the pace I want to because I find that if I try to hike if I try to walk faster or slower or whatever it just kind of throws everything off um and people have really different paces so they say that if you try to change your pace that, you know, it can contribute to overuse injury. Yeah. Like we all have really different ways we like regulate throughout the day, like different intervals we like to snack at or sit down or not <laughs> sit down or walk fast or not walk fast or how fast we go uphill, how fast we go downhill, et cetera, et cetera. 
So it fit, it worked best just to have some specific places along the way that you were going to meet at. Yeah. And that's still how I hike. Like I love to hike with okay. people. Um, I don't love hiking solo. I get like lonely really fast, but I love hiking with people and I, um, have pretty much mostly almost entirely just hiked with people. And I, that's how I like to do it is to say, you know, how many miles we're going, where we're having lunch. And then either at lunch or in the morning decide where we're going to camp that night. And, um, and then everyone has space in between that to like, you know, be in their thoughts, feel their feelings, go slow, go fast, do whatever they want to do. Sort of the best balance between the two things. Yeah, totally. Did you have the same amount or same issues with altitude sickness that you had that first year on the, on no. the, or on the CDT? When I hiked the PCT in 2013, when I was on the high Sierras, that was my first time ever being above 9,000 feet. Mm-hmm. And I was so sick the whole time I was on the high Sierras. Like it was, I felt so bad. Like just felt like I was going to throw up like so much nausea, which is, I think one of the worst sensations, nausea. Mm-hmm. I think it's mm-hmm. like one of the most miserable sensations. <laughs> um, it's so terrible, but uh, I got so sick, but then it never happened again. The next year I was worried. I was like, oh, I'm going to be sick again. I was fine. Like now when I'm at high elevations, you know, I feel I'm much more out of breath. And if I go, you know, like when I went up Mount Whitney the second year and I was at 14,000 feet, I felt kind of like drunk, but like fun drunk, you know? (laughs) So now I really like going to high elevations because, you know, I'll be out of breath and maybe I'll have a cough a little and maybe I'll feel a little like dizzy, but otherwise I feel really good. I never got that sort of tilt a whirl feeling again. And that was just in the Sierra. So when you got up into Washington and. Yeah. Washington's not that high. Okay. Yeah. It's just wet. Well, you still have tons of elevation gain, but the mountains, the prominence, like the, you start lower, you start like at right. sea level. And so you're only going up to like, I don't know what, don't quote me on this, like 5,000 <laughs> feet, something like that. Whereas the high Sierras, you go up to like 12, 13,000 feet. Right. Forester Pass was. I think you were saying like 13,000 feet or something like that. Yeah, totally. Did you hear uh, Casa de Luna is closing or closed? I guess. It's oh, I did year. hear. I, I bet that I don't know anything about that, but I bet they're very tired. <laughs> and I hope that whatever they have planned is like super great for whatever they're doing next. How was your experience of, of Casa de Luna? It was great. They, um, both years I was there. They fed us the taco salad, mm-hmm. which is so good. It's just like so much chips and cheese and meat and lettuce. And I mean, what else can you want, you know? And then, I mean, I don't drink and I'm not like, I don't like party on trail. So that part I never really experienced, but it's like, they have this like beautiful manzanita forest behind their house where you can camp and the food is really great. And yeah, it's nice. To get there, you went through a lot of wind, at least in the first year. Was the second year as windy? Um, the second year, no. That like windstorm I was in, I don't know. In 2013, I was in the worst windstorm was around Tehachapi and Mojave. Um, and then I did not experience wind that bad on the PCT. I think any time after that. That was maybe the worst wind I've ever been in. Like I've never again, like that wind was so bad. I literally, it was like hard to breathe. (laughs) I've never, um, 
I have not like pressure on you. Yeah, like air pressure on my face. <laughs> and like my pack straps were hitting me so hard in the face. They were like, bah, 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 and I like couldn't <laughs> stop. Like, and like, I like, I would like lay down on the ground next to a log just to get like a little pocket of air out of like the, the funnel, the wind tunnel, you know, like I, uh, I couldn't eat anything or drink any water or rest. I have not. I mean, I've been in bad wind since then, because if you're in an open space outdoors, chances are it'll get windy sometimes. But that's, I think, the worst wind I've ever been in. <laughs> and that's, I mean, there's tons. It's like wind farms. It's all wind yeah. farms. You're Tehachapi and Mojave, so it makes sense. The, I, exactly. There's a reason why it's out there. Same thing around, like, Palm Springs. Yeah, totally. There's a reason that it's out there, but I don't think that that we, I think about like the larger picture when you're like, okay, I'm just going to walk and yeah, there's wind machines here and so forth and so on. Yeah. Red flag. (laughs) Red flag. (laughs) Oh, it sounds like it sounded like at least on the first one, you were doing a lot of resupply where you were sending yourself food. Did you do that again after that? Yeah, I send myself boxes on every trail. I am just, I'm real picky. Like, I think a lot of long-distance hikers are, like, 20-year-old dudes, like, just, (laughs) who can just, like, live off anything. And um, I'm just not one of those people. So I like to bail myself, like, dried vegetables and, like, quality bars. And, I mean, all bars are the same thing, but I get, like, the ones that are a little better and... Um, the picky things that I feel like eating and yeah, it's nice. I like doing that. So what, what type of stuff do you resupply yourself with? Like what kind of bars or, or what, what do you, uh, eat for like breakfasts or dinners or that kind of stuff? Um, it changes all the time because they're always coming out with new bars, which is great because I feel like the more you eat a bar, the more terrible it becomes. Mm Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's only a matter of time before every bar becomes intolerable or like goes from being great to being the worst thing ever. So just whatever I'm not sick of. I don't know what that is right now, but I have this dinner. I really like that. I never get sick of the the trail snack that I never get sick of is chips. Specifically wavy lays, wavy lays are my favorite. They're so good. I just don't get tired of them. They're like just bland enough, just like plain enough, you know, that the flavor doesn't become like really overwhelming and very salty. They're just good. But I have this trail dinner I really like that is um, I boil rice noodles and I add instant refried beans, olive oil, taco seasoning and dried vegetables and make a soup that's like a slurry taco kind of soup with rice noodles. It's great. That's my favorite thing to eat for dinner. And I eat it every single night on trail. I eat the same thing every night and it's great. (laughs) (laughs) Which says something if you've eaten it that many days in a row. Yeah, I love it. Quick question for you. I realize is like, what is your trail name? I don't have a trail name because my name is already weird. So I just go by carrot. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. Is there anything you feel like we haven't, talked about that we should no i mean we covered a lot of lot of 
stuff that maybe is helpful for people who are completely new to backpacking I don't, or to long distance hiking. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. Yeah. And thanks so much for having me on. Um, I really appreciate it. And Absolutely. thanks for reading my book. And I hope it's entertaining for you. It, it is. I, I almost I almost feel like I shouldn't be reading it because it's so detailed that it'll the experience is like, okay, will it live up to the the description or <laughs> hopefully? Now, where can people find you if they would like to ask further questions or follow your continuing journey? I'm on Instagram, just carrot Quinn. And then um, I pretty much only use Instagram these days. I feel like it's the only social media that's still tolerable. And then you also have a... a blog, oh, and then my right? blog. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. CarrotQuinn.com. So I long distance hike and I blog every day. So... Nothing as exciting as that first trail, but some uh, s- sometimes things still do go totally awry. So, <laughs> yeah. so stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned. And links for Carrot's gear can be found on our website at hiking-through.com. Special thanks to Carrot for sharing her stories from the trails and Maya Wynn for the use of the song, Try Again. If you have through hiking adventures to share, we'd love to hear them. Please email me at hikingthroughpodcast at gmail.com or you can also DM me on Instagram at hikingthroughpodcast. If you like what we're doing here, we'd also love it if you would find us on your favorite podcast provider and leave a review. I'll see you on the trail. <laughs>